Welcome to the chess underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. Welcome back to the Chess Underground. Um, we're here with the November guest, FIDE Master Carl Bohr. Um, Carl, welcome to the show. Hey, Pete. How's it going? Excellent, excellent, as always. You know, Carl, I asked you to come on. Actually, it was funny. We were exchanging some Facebook messages about the pawn game, and um, I had taken a trip down to Mississippi, and one of the uh, chess instructors there, Dr. Jeff Bullington, had asked me if I believed the pawn game was solved as like a white win, a win for white. And I remember you and I, like a few a few summers ago, we were playing out the pawn game, and uh, we we kind of had some thoughts about it. We kind of decided perhaps maybe it was a forced win for White. Would you would you agree with that, or or what are your feelings there? Well, not at all. I would not agree it's a forced win for White. <laughs> uh, before I talk into the theory of the pawn game, we should probably break down what exactly it means. So, um, you know, the pawn game is a game where we start a chess game with no big pieces, just the pawns on the second and seventh ranks. And whoever queens a pawn wins. And um, so, yeah, is white winning if we set up a, a proposition like this? And I think the answer is probably not. If anything, I think it's a win for black, which is kind of funny because my father taught me the pawn game and uh, he thought that it was a win for black. And, and that you could do, do this, so he thought, just by copying all of white's moves. That's not the case. There is a way for white to break out of this mirror strategy. So the idea would be, I guess, if I'm if I'm visualizing it, if you simply copy white's moves, eventually white would be in Zugzwing, right? So there, therefore, the idea is black wins because white runs out of moves. Right. So that that's kind of level one in understanding pawn game strategies. How does white break out of the mirror, uh, the mirror game? And there's actually a way to do that, such that if black copies white's moves, he's he's going to actually lose. Um, but that does not mean white is winning by force. So before we get too dense on the theory, I, I'm curious because um, I mentioned, I brought up the pawn game to you before the show when we were discussing. And um, it, it's interesting, your introduction to the pawn game was very similar to what was going on in Mississippi. Um, we, were, we were working with a room full of teachers who had never played chess before. They were just learning the rules. And the pawn game was used as a tool to sort of introduce them to pawns, introduce them to the game. And it, it sounds like, if I'm hearing you correctly, you had the same experience. Yeah, I mean, my father just loved chess. He lived for chess, and he, he taught chess to a lot of people, and he always started with the pawn game. Um, I don't know how he picked it up. I have, I have the impression that he actually invented it independently. Somehow a lot of teachers and, and chess people have done this when they're we're trying to make, easy, uh, trying to make the, the teaching of chess easy for a, you know, a three- or a four-year-old or a five-year-old. you know, you got to start somewhere. I actually worked at a school once where I, I had a student who had epilepsy and he, he had had a, a procedure done where half of his brain was removed. And oh, wow. that's what we did. We did a lot of pawn game. And, uh, you know, he never progressed past that, but he did enjoy it. And it's a lot of fun. So in preparation for this, I actually have a, I have a student, Oren, who's a high-level AI programmer guy. 
And I, I gave him a prop, you know, this question is, can you, can you solve this game? And he's, he's solving it. He, he has a computer working on it. Some stuff came up. He wasn't able to finish it in time, which is a, uh, for our, for our listeners. But here's, here's where we're at. If you take one pawn versus one pawn and they're on the same line, the game is going to end in a tie. If you take two pawns, let's say on A, A and B versus pawns on A7 and B7, we play this out, black wins every time. If you take three because pawns... Because of Zugzwang, right? Yes. The, the mirror strategy wins with two versus two. Absolutely. Okay. Where things get interesting is once we have three pawns versus three pawns. That game is a draw. There is no way to break through. So we see a pattern starting to ar- arrive of uh, the odd numbers leading to draws and the even numbers leading to wins for black. And that is the case with four versus four. Black wins. Five versus five is a draw and then a bombshell. Thanks to Oren, we now know that six versus six is also a draw. The pattern breaks. Really? Yep. And I, I haven't looked at the, the database, and there's a lot of positions in that database, so I don't, I don't even know if I would understand everything if I was able to play it through. But uh, hopefully, you know, maybe this year he'll have a, a database where I can play through this and try to understand it. But Yeah, I would love to see, like, the, the analysis and the, uh, the published details of why, you know, each different number of the pawn game, when you, when you add a pawn, it changes the result in a certain way. Right. Well, you can really see it just on a very basic level with that one and two. You know, this is... Very right. solvable. Um, but my, my intuition and what I've worked on through all these years, you know, trying to play this out, I think that eight versus eight is a draw. Or, really? or now I'm thinking it's a draw or maybe black. But there's no evidence based on what we're seeing and what I've analyzed to say that white is winning, which is shocking. Yeah, when we were playing it out over the board, I remember uh, it felt like white, when moving first, would take a lot of space. And then that extra space, you know, the one extra move, when it came down to making a breakthrough, you know, one side or the other pushes for a breakthrough, the extra space for white having the extra move made a big difference. But it sounds like maybe not. Yeah, it's counterbalanced by the idea of, uh, of Zugzwang and running out of good moves. So it's not that simple. Hmm. But you actually have a guy, you have a guy running a database right now somewhere in the world who is... Uh, plugging in the various different pawn game starting positions, starting all the way back to one and two pawns and trying to solve it. Yeah, it's, he started, he st- I didn't ask him to, to really break it down, um, you know, one and then two pawns and then three pawns, but that's how he's approaching it, which makes a lot of sense. And he's a heck of a lot smarter than me and, uh, at this. And we'll know soon yeah. enough. It's sort of like end game table bases, right? They started with four yeah, pieces. Yeah, I, I think I think it would be a worthy uh, worthy book, maybe. It, it could be a book. Solving the pawn game, <laughs> solving so, solving the pawn game with Fida Master Carl. Yeah, but not, not just not just all the solutions, but also I think there's a lot that that can be beneficial to to chess players developing the calculation, and also there's there is definitely stra- the strategy of pawn breakthroughs. You know, one open ended question is this: if we get to a stalemate. And one player has more material. How do you how do you judge that? Is that a draw, or does the guy with more material win, even though he doesn't clean a pawn because one player runs out of moves? And the way that I'm I'm having Oren solve this is to say that that situation is still a draw. As in regular chess, we have this concept of stalemate. I think the stalemate concept should apply to pawn games too. Right. You know? No, I would agree. So you only, only win by pawn. Yeah, I mean you have to have the the game 
based on the foundation of legal moves, right? So if the if the player doesn't have a legal move, then it should be a draw. Right. That's interesting, though, that you can achieve a draw in a pawn game with a stalemate where one side has like an extra pawn or two extra pawns. Yep. So speaking of AI, you know, I'm I'm fascinated. We've had a couple guests on the show before where we've had some discussions about chess and artificial intelligence. And it's something that truly fascinates me. It seems like chess is sort of like the the leaping off point for developing AI, right? Um, you had mentioned uh, an interest in it. Where, where does your interest stem from? Well, for now, it's just uh, me and Oren working on the pawn game. I mean, I, I'm one of these chess players who uh, my generation is, you know, the, the generation that saw the rise of computers becoming like the mainstream and also Internet chess in general. So, you know, I, I've right. I don't know. I, I, I wonder. I'm, I'm fascinated by chess players now coming up who that's, you know, they're, they're integrated with the technology. I remember when, you know, chess informant was the cutting edge and uh, and seeing ICC and chess base, you know, basically take over. And uh, it, it's not stopping, right? We have new, new revolutions every few years now. Well, it's Leela chess and, and all these things, which I've never even worked with, honestly. I'm still, I guess, behind the times. My computers, uh, I don't even know how to load them up and use them effectively. But <laughs> I'm, I'm still in the, sto- right. the stockfish mode is, is my cutting edge. But um, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating topic for sure. So do you think, you know, I, I wonder... Um... We see, as you mentioned, this generation of players literally coming into their own with with computers, right? Solving problems on computers, researching openings uh, with databases and engine help. Um, do you think that, in a way, this is the death of creativity in chess? You know, we're, we're, we're just replicating and learning as opposed to branching out and trying new ideas? Um, no, I don't think it's the death of creativity at chess at, at the level of your average chess player, right? At my level and... You know, people who who don't have a phenomenal memory. <laughs> um, you know, when we're playing over the board, it's still it's still the chess game that that Emmanuel Lasker played, and uh, I don't think I don't think creativity in chess is dead. I, I think that the computers, you know, for society and chess in general, is just a beneficial thing. So I'm not I'm not one of those. Know, there are some players who are bitter about computers, uh, but uh, for me, no. It's always been a question of talent and memory, you know. One thing I think about in terms of um, computers and creativity that always rings true, and maybe you can speak to this since you you actually have a, an opening you've named. Um, I've I noticed that they're particularly good at discovering ideas within an opening system that already exists, right? You know, like you can find a theoretical novelty, you can find a new idea or a new way of approaching a position with the Absolutely, assistance of an yeah. engine. Um, but what about developing an, an entirely new system on your own? Uh, I, I know, for example, uh, you have one that you lovingly call the Bora Tech. Right. So the the backstory to that is um, is is a man named Hans Berliner, who is speaking of AI and chess computers. I mean, he's one of the um, the grandfathers of this. He was the first player to develop a uh, a master level computer that he took all around the United States that the computer itself would, you know, play in the open sections. He was a world champion of correspondence chess, a brilliant, brilliant man in, this, in chess and in the development of computers and algorithms. He wrote this wonderful book called the system or yeah, the system, not my system, the system, right? Not my system. It's called the system. Okay. Where he proposed that at least in some systems, 
uh, white is winning. Like hmm. there's certain openings where white has a forced win. One of the openings that he wasn't sure about was the Slav, although he did make mention of a certain idea with a pawn to F3 in the exchange. In the book, he, he says it's an interesting idea, but basically he, could, he couldn't find any proofs that it was a win for white. Well, I took over from there and developed it. And yeah, white's not winning probably any of these openings by force, but uh, certainly there's a lot of interesting ideas that can be drawn out with the help of engines and I've been developing it ever since. This is, you know, going over maybe 13, 14 years now. I'm happy to say when I started, there was maybe 20 games in the database. And now we're over 100 games. 2,600 players have played it. And I think I'm justified to say that I'm uh, definitely one of the innovators and creators of this of this line, promoters of it. Uh, a lot of tournament games that never made it into the database, unfortunately. So, so the the line goes: it's the exchange slot, right? D four, D five, C four, C six, and then C D five, C D five, F three. Correct. That's the starting point. No, no, you wouldn't want to no, go F three okay. first. So knight C three. Knight C three. Okay. And upon knight F six, we have the move pawn to F three, with the idea of E four. Really, this is the um, the Muller attack in the Italian game with new clothes. At least uh, okay. spirit chess. Speaking, you know, <laughs> the energy is a very sharp attacking line, and lots of forcing variations that I've outlined in a book I published on Chessable. Small plug. Right now, I understand. Apart from uh, the boar attack, you have some other work on Chessable as well. Uh, you mentioned something on the Benoni. Right. I just I just pub- published a book there called The Wild Wild Benoni, and it's it's doing well. It's always been, you know, an opening I've wrestled with for, for both sides is is the modern Benoni, a lot of fun to analyze and play, for sure. For those of our users who aren't familiar with Chessable, could you explain a little bit how that works, what that is? Right, so Chessable is, uh, let's see, it was started by Bartholomew, forgetting his first name, International Master Bartholomew. John Bartholomew, yep. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that it's um, a flashcard system. It's, it's If you're familiar with the, the software Chess Position Trainer, it's, it's a lot like that, but it's in a browser format. Okay. And... From my point of view, what's innovative about it is that anybody can publish content, and uh, yeah, it's a it's an open publishing content browser for uh, chess books and a flashcard approach where you, it approaches it from the idea of repetition, spaced repetition. It's a it's a good uh, a good training program. Okay, so when you when you publish a book on there, I guess the way it works is the author simply uploads it, and then the user can log in and, and take a look at it. Well, they've really stepped up their game. It's it's not even that easy any, anymore. Now there's a whole editorial process, and okay, you know they really make sure you're publishing quality content. Right, gotcha. So there's like a filter, and and they're looking for for specific material. Yeah, and and they have a, a feedback thing where they have a bunch of beta program, make sure it's it's operating smoothly, and everybody's getting on board. They're they're publishing a lot of content, and actually the, the whole thing was purchased by Magnus Carlson like this year. So oh wow, I didn't it looks know that. like a it's really a book publishing company, but in a browser format in the, the flashcard system. Right. As we discussed, right, the new generation moving more towards online, more towards computer assistance and technology. Yep. Um, we're, we're replacing the old books. I, I, I will never, I will never hand over my copy of the art of the middle game though, even though it is still in the, uh, the old notation. Was that by Uwe? Uh, the art of the middle game is Kiris and Kotov. Or Kiris. Kiris and Kotov. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough book. I, I, I definitely have, uh, 
read some of that book. It's interesting, you know, <clears throat> as I recall, part of that book, there's a section on how to handle adjournments and how to analyze adjourned positions. And, you know, that's something that simply we don't have anymore. I wonder what the next thing to become obsolete will be. Yeah, that's that's the generation before yeah. mine, right? Our, our generation never saw adjournments. I never had a single one. And I, I doubt – I maybe when I was a very little boy in the late 1980s, I might have been a participant in a tournament where there was an adjournment. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's about as close as I ever came to that. Fascinating. I can't even imagine nowadays having adjournments. It's just yeah. wild. I mean you would you would literally just come back with the position solved. You know, stay, staying up all night. Right. Yeah, you'd just come back with the position solved and you'd either resign or the other player would resign, right? Or agree to draw. No, I don't think so. You'd come back and you'd fight tooth and nail like a 2700 player for a few moves and then – Maybe somebody's going to forget the analysis or some <laughs> surprise thing that turns into a chess game again, but there would be a few strong moves for sure. <laughs> so, Carl, another thing that you had mentioned, you know, we talked about pawn game. Um, I'm a big fan. I, I love chess variants. Um, I love Crazy House. I love Bug House. I love, I personally really enjoy playing Fisher Random. Um, but you are of the opinion that there is a game that is superior to Fisher, Fisher Random, correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I think Bobby Fischer stole the idea of Fischer Random, and he stole it from a man named David Bronstein, co-world champion in the 1950s, absolutely brilliant player, who came up with an idea called placement chess or Bronstein chess or pre-chess. We, we set it up like a pawn game, eight pawns each. Okay. On the first move, White drops a piece onto the first rank. He could play, you know, any, any piece doesn't matter. So basically what it is is it's non-symmetrical, non-random, Fisher random chess. Interesting. Posed by Bronstein in the, in the late 50s. There's actually very scant information on this on the web, uh, but there is one blog post by a chess master named Lowell Davis. If anybody's listening to this and they want to go look up more about it, uh, that's, the, that's maybe where I, I don't even know how I learned about this game, but uh, I've played it over the years with a lot of players and Everybody I show it to says it's this is better than Fisher Random. There's more positions to play classical chess still as far as your formation. It really seems like it's a more logical step forward than randomizing the game, which I think is against the very nature of chess. Chess is a game of logic, not a random encounter. If you think about even what chess represents, warfare, uh, the, the, the idea of chess was that these two armies had a very set strategy or a set formation, at least, and we want to see how it plays out, not shuffling. Right. And you get even more of that with Bronstein chess, where on the very first placement, we can talk about the theoretical advantage of, say, a bishop on a1 versus uh, a rook on d8. Right. So I think it makes the game much, much bigger. There's actually, you know, compared to 960 starting positions – you have over 8 million starting positions. So there's a lot of room for style. And um, and one more thing about the, the formation. Bronstein actually was very smart. You know, how would you do castling rules in this game? Right. I was going to ask, are there, are there specific rules in terms of, you know, in Fisher Random, the king must be between the two rooks, right? Right. Um, are there any specific placement rules like that which you must adhere to? No. So the only rule that you adhere to is the bishops have to be on opposite colors. Other than that, though, well, here's the, here's the castling rule. You can only castle if your king starts on his throne. 
and his throne is E1. So it's tying back to classical chess. Castling okay. only exists when the king is on E1 and the rook is in the corner that you're going to castle with. So I think it's interesting, this, uh, this, this modification where, you know, we do have castling, but your king has to stand in the center of the battlefield, the battlefield to have it. And honestly, as someone who does teach chess to very little children, it would be much easier for me to explain this game than, uh, than Fisher random and the randomization process and all of that. No way. I have to show up with a special chess clock or use coins and dice. No way is this easier, <laughs> you know? So, right. And really, to be, to, to be honest, I play a lot of online chess and I do like Fisher Random. Um, I try to start games in this all the time. I can't even get a game. I don't understand. I don't know what the hype is. People don't really play it that much. So, do online platforms offer Bronstein chess? It's a really sh a big shame, in my opinion, that chess.com, LI chess, ICC, no, they don't, either they don't know or nobody programmed it that this is not an option. Because I think it would catch on like wildfire if, if there was a way yeah. online for people to just see for themselves what it's all about. This is the real chess underground, is, is and play this game. <laughs> you know, it's funny because when I, when I introduced students to um, a Fisher random type variant, I was actually, I actually play Bronstein chess with them without knowing it. Um, instead of randomizing in position, you know, because first of all, that's kind of boring. Um, I'll just say, okay, we're going to play We're going to play a variant here where we're going to place pieces on the board. I was unwittingly playing Bronstein chess. I didn't, I didn't even know it. Yeah. It, it makes sense. It makes logical sense. And so there's so many things I can critique about Fisher random, but a big one is that, Part of the heart and soul of chess is the volumes and volumes of chess history that we have. The written record of the game is so integral to chess. As much as we bemoan chess theory, we have this great tradition going back 600 years of, of great chess books. If you start the randomization right. process, all of that goes out the window. If, if, if Fisher Random takes over, a lot, of, a lot of it at least, you know, you got your endgame manuals, I suppose, but a lot of that becomes a little bit less relevant. On the other hand, if we do Bronstein chess and we are allowed to place the pieces where, we are, where we'd like, we can still play classical chess. We can choose to set up the classical game. Or we can develop theory and can continue the conversation about what is the best formation starting from the first moves. So you'd have, you'd have style. You'd have a lot of style to, or players would have certain formations that they like and and this aspect of chess preparation would continue, but it would become so much bigger, it would offset the advantage of the first move, for one, and computer preparation. I mean, it's so silly to see Magnus Carlsen and all these elite players play these Fisher Random tournaments, and they actually have time to prepare the opening. What is that? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it does feel like it sort of defeats the spirit of the, of, of, of the variant, right? Right. I mean, the Fisher Random thing, at least if we're going to play it, let's not have any prep time. Let's sit down at the board, be men, and then the arbiter comes over and shows us what we're going to do and we're on our own. I mean, no computer prep, at least, if we're going to take this serious. I, I didn't understand that. Yeah. I don't understand the – okay, I do understand the push for Fisher Random. It's just because Bobby Fisher promoted it. If he had promoted Bronzine Chess, that's what we would have. I think, you know, also, too, part of the appeal is that you know, as as we were discussing, it does sort of lead us away from just repeating an opening variation that we've played hundreds of times, right? Uh, following some line of theory, right. 
So, so, you know, there's some appeal to getting fresh positions and having more of a fight, more of a battle, but it seems like you're right. I mean, Bronstein chess would, would do that even more so because you don't even know the initial position you're going to get. It's just a bigger game. I mean, in, in Bronstein chess, the players could agree before the game to go ahead and click the randomization button and play symmetrical random chess if they wanted to. Right. You know, I wonder if they're, uh, as I'm thinking about it, I can sort of think of like strategies already, you know, and I'll, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Have you ever played the, the game Secret Queen? Never. So the idea is that at the beginning of, of the chess game, it, it, the pieces are set up normally. Everything is as, as usual. But one of your pawns is secretly a queen. Um, ah. Yeah, it, it tends to... What is your queen? Oh, you, have, you start with two queens? That's right. You start your with two queens. Queen. Your normal queen and your secret queen. And um, you do not have to reveal your queen or your pawn that is a queen until you wish to use it as one. If it gets captured before you reveal it, you don't have to reveal that information either. Um, but the reason I bring this up as, as an analogous idea is because I think, like personally, after having played this game against a bunch of students, I think there's a strategy to selecting which pawn you want to be your queen. And the, the relationship here with Bronstein chess is I'm sure that there are strategies in terms of how you create your initial position. You know, like one that I would think of right off the bat would be if I'm playing Bronstein chess, my king is probably going to be the last piece I put on the board, right? I want to hide the location of where my king is going to go as long as possible. Because just that right there opens up a whole new window for a thing called handicaps. Rather than doing time odds, we don't have much in the way of of handicaps in chess. I mean, we got peace odds and we got time odds. Right there is a whole new um, odds factor. Is eventually we'd progress to the point where we knew certain matchups were bad matchups. So the higher rated player could be forced to play suboptimal formations or or he could place his king first as a handicap. So, uh, Carl, you know, um, very recently on the show, I had Will Aramal. You, you know Will, correct? Yep. Uh, and it was interesting after a... I agree. <laughs> very fun, very fun to chat with. After the show was published, um, I had an interesting comment uh, where one of our listeners said, aha, so a seedy, a seedy underground world of chess hustlers does indeed exist. Um, and, you know, they were talking, of course, about uh, Will playing pool and playing blitz chess and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I remember having the thought, well, I can raise you, I can see you one Will Aramal and raise you one Carl Bohr. <laughs> uh, I remember uh, several several tournaments where you were you were playing some blitz chess after the round at the Chicago Open and stuff. Um, so, Carl, can you confirm that indeed a seedy underground world of chess hustlers exists? I don't know if it exists anymore, but I mean, <laughs> I remember being on Greyhound buses going to chess tournaments in, in the nineties and. Um, it wasn't the the idea of hustling speed chess or playing speed chess for money was was really for survival's sake. Uh, I guess I'm a very big underachiever in chess as far as where I've what I've achieved and where I've come from. I was pushed to play chess, but we didn't really have the means to play or to get the coaching or um, maintain a middle class life and play chess tournaments every weekend. So it was kind of one or the other. Um, Mm. <laughs> so the speed chess and so you went with the chess tournaments naturally <laughs> right right speed chess definitely supplemented some of these tournaments one of the things that i asked will and i'm i'm interested to hear your answer to the same question i said you know what are what are the skills that are specific to blitz you know compared to compared to uh playing like objectively strong classical chess what 
what makes you a strong blitz player? Um, not being a perfectionist. That would be the first thing I'm, in my mind. A lot of chess players, you can already strike the perfectionist off of the uh, off the list. The perfectionists aren't going to do that great at, at blitz. Uh, moving fast, of course, and and being serious about blitz and playing it a lot is is definitely where it's at. So the pragmatists and the competitor are always going to outperform the uh, the perfectionist. That's for sure. You know, it's interesting that was that was Will's uh, exact first answer as well. Hmm. Um, and so, I, so I, it's I, interesting I not, you guys said I the did same not thing. That podcast. So it's interesting. Downloaded but didn't listen. Thank you, thank you, Carl. Uh, <laughs> no, um, honestly though, I, I think that's a, that's a really good point as far as being able to be efficient with your with your moves and more importantly, be efficient with your clock. Probably second that goes is the art. The artist is going to go too. Art, art and blitz is important because um, it ties into intuition. Mm-hmm. And intuitive players are going to do great at, for the most part, better in blitz. I would say. But at the same time, you cannot be the overly you know, artistic player in speed chess or try to create some kind of work of art. That, that, that's the second to go. I think it was Fisher who said there's no bluffing on the chessboard, but is there bluffing in Blitz? Well, definitely it seems you can open up sacrifices that aren't 100% sound. And, you know, once we get down to 10 seconds, um, yeah, anything goes. Um so certainly, certainly <laughs> bluffing or, right. or yeah, at least uh, BSing is uh, it's more relevant. Shock chess. Shock chess is my, my buddy Calvin would, would use that term. Calvin Blocker from Ohio. You know, the more shocking mm-hmm. moves a lot of the time in blitz, the better. Um, hmm. Interesting. So there's like a, there's like a blitz theory that that's developing here. I suppose. I never really thought about it, though. I never... I never developed a blitz theory or anything like that. I just I just played a lot of it. I played more blitz chess than any any version. That's for sure because of online and also at tournaments you get right. more games in, right? So uh, I think what Fisher another quote by Fisher that's relevant to chess though uh, to blitz chess that is is he said that blitz chess kills your ideas and certainly you can run through whole cycles of of chess philosophy in in style and you can evolve or maybe devolve by playing tons and tons of blitz games. And it, it can whittle you down mm-hmm. to being um, pragmatic. And, uh, and it, like, 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 like the man said, it kill, a lot of times it kills ideas, kills a lot of the fresh ideas, um, just from repetition. Doesn't, doesn't leave room for them because of the, the practical nature that you have to adopt. Right. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think it whittles down, whittles things down to their essence perhaps, or, or just makes you more pragmatic. So, Carl, um, you had mentioned you had some grand ideas. If if Carl Boer, Fide Master Carl Boer, was in charge of the chess world, um, we're going to sort of allow you to to presume that the underground revolution uh, has taken hold. Um, apart from eliminating Fisher Random, <laughs> make chess great again. Apart from um, right, let's make chess make chess great again. Right. Apart from changing Fisher Random tournaments to Bronstein chess tournaments, what else would President Boer do for uh, for chess? Well, can I be a czar? So, okay, yes. What else would czar czar Boer or czarina czarina Boer? No, czar Boer. So one question I think the chess United States chess world in particular wrestles with is: I don't have the hard data in front of me, but it, it sure seems like we have a lot of scholastic players in the elementary age group. 
a, a decent share in the middle age, uh, middle school group. High school, okay, it's starting to fall off. And then adult, is, is it is what it is. Uh, it seems like the numbers are, are lower, right? I do find myself playing a lot of kids lately. Is this a fair, uh, is that a fair statement? I, I think so. I mean, um, I would I would imagine the numbers would probably bear that out as well. Um, you know, and, and it makes sense logically, right? People get busy. They have families. They have a job and, and uh, hobbies sort of fall by the wayside, I suppose. It's probably the same picture in basketball too, right? In every other thing that people do. Right. As far as fun stuff. Okay. <laughs> this definitely is going to undermine a lot of my argument, but stay with me. Okay. I'm with you for now. So a question we have is how do we keep people in the chess scene, you know, past 16 years old? And well, what are we trying? What is the United States Chess Federation actively doing to to make that a reality or or is that even important are you asking or or is this a rhetorical question i'm asking i'm asking you i'm, I'm bouncing this off of you yeah i mean um that's a good question i i think uh the short answer is a lot of things um and there there are probably some more detailed answers than that um but you know for example um i think what we're doing right now is one of those outreach efforts you know creating uh, media that uh, people can interact with um, and ideally bring them back to the game. Um, I think that's a that's an important step. You know, the more the more of a presence you have, the better. Uh, I think that there is still a lot of work to be done. Um, one one of the things so, so making a chess interesting, making, right? yeah, making the game it, making it interesting. I don't know about making it great again, but making it interesting. Uh, one of the things that that um, I, I hope you'll see in the future, and this is a bit of a teaser, is um, I, I think we're going to try at some point to have some variant tournaments. Um, so maybe even Bronstein Chess can oh, be boy. included in that. Uh, but things like Crazy House. Sign me yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, I think, I, well, that's great to hear, you know, and I, and I when I mention that. I'm ready to defend, I'm ready to defend my world title, <laughs> my world Bronstein Chess title. It's a very small you know, one idea that I had, and I've, I've pitched this, and I'm, I'm hoping to maybe see it happen at some point in the future. Um, are you familiar with uh, the poker game Horse? I am. So Hold'em, Omaha, Raz, Stud 8, right? Right. Um, where each each round, each time the dealer button goes around, you play a new, uh, a new variant of poker, if you will. Um, so one of the ideas I had was to have a chess tournament that is the same way, that works the same way, essentially, right? Um, I don't know what we'd call it. We'd have to come up with some cool name, you know. But well, yeah, we'd have to take all the uh, the anagrams of uh, of the variants, you know, bug house. You have a bunch of B's, right? Bug house, Bronstein chess, right? Uh, bug chess. house, Bronstein chess, crazy house, um, pawn game. pawn game, racing kings was another one. I don't know if you've played that variant. I think that would be really fun to yeah, play. It's on Li Chess. Li Chess is great, by the way. I'm gonna I'm gonna plug Li Chess. I really. I call it Li Chess, or is it Lee Chess? So I have—I actually have the definitive answer on that. Um, sure, it is Lee Chess because it comes ah. from the French term libre, which means free. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so yeah, my uh, one of the ideas I have, and I, I personally think that this would be very appealing to adult players. You know, um, is to have a variant tournament. You know, put the fun back into the game, give them new ways to explore and to interact with with the chess board and the chess pieces. Yeah, it sounds it sounds fascinating. I'm surprised. Well, no, I'm not surprised. The reason we're not seeing cool variant chess tournaments is because Fisher Random dominates, and it turns out Fisher Random is not that fun. <laughs> so that's 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 why you we heard it here first. Fisher Random, not that fun. When we, we have bug house tournaments, we 
chess tournaments. And in my book, they are variants. But uh, we don't really see any interest <laughs> in 960, unfortunately. So going back to making chess great again, you know, I, I teach a class at a um, at a locked facility for for middle for uh, teenage kids, and um, it bothers me. Like these kids love chess, and I know that most of them are not going to become tournament chess players, and. Um, one small reason why, but I think it's a big reason why, is that to join a, to join a chess tournament, there's actually a two-step process. You just don't go up to the chess tournament and pay money and sit down and play. You actually have to go join the United States Chess Federation first, pay a fee, and then you can play a chess tournament. So there's two fees, there's two processes. And from 20 years of teaching chess, I know a lot of people do not like the extra hurdle of the red tape and cost to join the Federation first. So if there was just a way to, to go to the chess tournament and it was a simple one-shot process where you had the option to purchase the magazine subscription or have free entry into the, uh, into the Federation, I think it could only help chess. I think it would actually help the USCF to have a lot more members. And yeah, that's one small little thing to make chess great again is let's simplify and reduce the rate to free just to play chess tournaments. Of course, you're going to pay your entry fee, and maybe there would still be a fee that was built into the entry fee that goes to the Federation, uh, but $40 a year forced membership to a magazine isn't a turn-on to a lot of people walking on the street, I would say. Well, one thing I will say is we do have membership options that do not involve um, um, chess life, that do not involve receiving the magazine. For adults? Um, so that's, yes, for adults, I believe so. Um, I believe you can choose, I believe you can choose, uh, just, um, a non, a non print magazine membership. Uh, so actually you are making chess great again. That, that exists. Um, Good. yeah. Now, now can we make it so you don't have to go to the website first and sign up? It's just, the tournament. <laughs> just do it at the site. Yeah. Uh, actually some, some events do offer that option. Okay. Um, I believe. Uh, some events, um, you can, you can go and you can sign up there. In fact, some events even will offer a discount, um, to the membership. If you sign up through that event, uh, I think I've seen something like that before. Um, although that might be scholastic only, um, but okay. So good. We have two ideas. Okay. That's, that's point number one, moving on to my second agenda. I'm not sure which I want to push. Okay. I know which one I want to push. <laughs> this is your entire, your entire platform. Okay. The entire platform of czar. Carl Bohr. If you look at golf, if you look at pool, if you look at a lot of things, a lot of recreational pro uh, sports, you will see that they have sponsors. <laughs> and oftentimes the sponsors of these events have, um, have something in the game in terms of they're selling something that, that is part of the game. For example, if you're going to have a pool tournament, oftentimes the, the makers of the tables the makers of the pool sticks are sponsoring the and there's still an entry fee. Sure. But it's going to pad the, the prize pool uh, significantly in some cases. So a question I have is why hasn't the United States Chess Federation branded um, chess pieces, chess clocks, everything they sell in these magazines? A little piece of that should go towards a pro chess uh tournament cycle where you know every big city in the united states should have a yearly event that is tied to the merchandise 
Now, I don't know if I would go as draconian to say that you have to play or you have to show up with a USCF chess set, but it, it might not hurt. So to make chess tournaments great again, <laughs> one thing I've one thing I'm going to laugh every time you say that phrase, by the way. So one, one thing I've never understood is uh, if you look at basketball, pool, golf, it really seems that the merchandise helps sponsor the the pro league. Sure, you mean like the yeah. like the player jersey, for example, in, in basketball? Not even the clothes, although I didn't even think of that, right? We should have chess-themed clothes, but <laughs> actually the, the actual gear itself. I don't know that like, I can actually picture anyone wearing, wearing chess-themed clothes. Although, you know what? That's not true. I've seen, you know, like uh, the t-shirt with a bunch of chess pieces on it, and it says right. weapons of choice or something. Yeah, okay, all right. Yeah. There's been some pretty cool chess clothes over the years. Anyways... Oh. What I don't understand is why why are the chess set manufacturers and the chess clock manufacturers not forced by the United States Chess Federation to to help sponsor events? Why why does that never seem to happen? Well, if we if we could the force them, I have a feeling that we would we would love to have that power. <laughs> they publish the the catalog right that you that you purchase from. It's I don't know if you can put that cat back in the box, by the way, but. Um, yeah, I, I, if you look at other sports, you certainly can see that. Yeah, and that kind of brings me to the second or the third point about how to make chess tournaments great again is why um, why don't we have a World Open in every major city in the United States? Why can we not get the merchandisers to be on board to help sponsor very nice, not elite chess tournaments, open style chess tournaments like the World Open where everybody can play in their section and um, it's it's for it's for the masses, right? It's right. not just for seven people in, in St. Louis. It's it's for it's for everybody. You know what's interesting is um, we had a guest on on the Chess Underground uh, Chess Underground over the summer, um, Stacia Pugh, uh, who is a professional cornhole player. Uh huh. And one of the things that we discussed was sponsorship. Cornhole um, has become has 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 seen increased popularity. Um, they have uh, some of their more serious matches are televised on ESPN, kind of like um, chess back in the day when we had Kasparov versus the computer, right? Yeah. Um, and the commentary live on ESPN. Um, you know, they have sponsors. One of the ones I think she men- mentioned was like Johnsonville Brats, right? You know, um, things that are tangentially related to the environment or atmosphere where you might find yourself playing uh playing cornhole uh, or the beanbag game uh, as, as us Midwesterners call it. And I think those, those big, those big corporate sponsors that we've always lusted after the chess world, I don't think they're going to come until our own products that are directly related to chess, the chess Mm -hmm. clocks, the chess books, the chess software um, and the chess clocks and probably a bunch of other stuff I'm not thinking of is, is one-to-one related to chess branding and chess tournaments that those things are integrated which there's not now you know you don't have the chronos open yeah that's true um, that's true and i'm not i'm not i'm not saying these small companies have to carry the entire weight of the thing not at all they don't in, in golf they don't in pool uh, but they're related so you still pay your entry fee it's just a supplement which i think we we have this we have this model in, in the chess tournament process where this lower ranked sections sponsor the open section. You know, it's interesting you you bring that up about the smaller companies because I wonder if this is a an idea like or a a method of um of operating that's unique to chess. You know, I think about 
um, when Chronos came out and uh, and um, and some of the some of the advances in in chess products and merchandise, you know, clocks. Another one that I think of is the Step Program, uh, which you're familiar with. And, and by the way, behind the scenes in the Chronos thing, just to interrupt you, it's Bronstein again. That's <laughs> the innovative force. Bronstein increment time yeah. is what made that you're right. innovation necessary. Um, but where I was going with that is, you know, a, a lot of the a lot of this merchandising, is, the way that it sort of enters the chess world, right? Um, it's local, small companies, sometimes even private individuals that come up with it. Like as I was mentioning, the step program um, for teaching teaching people how to how to play, um, and then it, it it's essentially just word of mouth, right? And that's very unique to chess. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't go to a pool hall. And someone be, would would you know say something like, "Oh, have you heard of Diamond Billiards?" You know, um, it, it's just a different way that the product reaches the consumer, which is unique to chess. And I wonder, you know, sort of how that culture evolved and developed, um, particularly in the United States. You know, we had another collector on the show, Ron Suarez, um, who was you know he, he literally like searches for these tiny producers of chess boards, chess equipment. Because they don't publicize themselves, they don't advertise. They just they exist, and if you know about them, you can get their product, right? Um, that 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 it, you know you're right. You're absolutely right. That is something that seems very unique to chess as a game or as a, as a sport, if you will. But I think it's it's not a strength. I think it's a weakness. I think that no, I I, I would agree. I would agree. But I, I I just I wonder how that culture evolved and developed, and I wonder how to change. How would Czar Karl Bohr change it? Well. I, first of all, because we recognize it exists, right? We we admit and acknowledge that that's how it is, and that's how it has been for a while. And even with new products, we see that happen. Um, you know, uh, one of the new products Ron talked about was a, a wooden chessboard that you could break into four parts and put back together magnetically. You know, like a full size tournament board. Right. Um, I didn't even know that existed until I saw Ron's. You know, it's a small company. I think he said in like uh, the Czech Republic that makes it. So how do we break that mold? How would Zara Carl break that mold? Well, I think I think one. I mean, it's it's really uh, like I said, draconian. But we've seen in our lifetime the USCF say you cannot use this style of clock. You can no longer use these analog clocks. You have to use digital clocks. We've seen this kind of transition. It can be the same way with you cannot use this non-sponsor uh, brand. This is the tournament standard. And you know what? When it comes to certain chess sets, there's very cheap plastic chess sets that are not weighted properly. There should be a standard to the weight of the chess set, and nobody follows this. I mean, I'm sure that that, that there's some buried rule, right, where it exists. You know, the chess tournament has the chess pieces have to be a certain weight and all that. Um, but I think it, it's not unfathomable that the the federation can say this is our brand and everybody has to purchase it, and then take the money and put it in the right place, which is kind of point number three or point number four i don't know where we're at <laughs> is there should be a grand prix cycle that is that is very um very strong very robust you know the la open the columbus open uh and integrate it i mean the, the framework's already there there's already a grand prix cycle right. that's true it's there just is, yeah. getting more sponsors on board well i can tell you you know since you had asked me the question earlier um in a non-rhetorical way you know what is us chess doing in that in that regard um not a lot of people know this, but um, we do have now a director of development um, who was brought on just this year. Um, 
Jeff Isaac, and I've seen he's he's doing excellent work uh, on our behalf. And so I think we're headed in the right direction. If I can if I can offer a glimmer of hope, um, uh, I will I will do so. And I think uh, Jeff was a was a great uh, piece to add. Um, and his role is essentially to work on uh, some of the not the exact ideas that Zar Carl is uh, discussing here, but um, to bring us into that cultural cultural change, if you will. I don't know if I can go that far, but but to to sort of um, address some of these ideas, I guess. So the next point I would say is let's look at the poker boom and how do we bring more cash to the table. The second thing is that in the poker boom, you saw this explosion of the integration of online and over-the-board um, tournaments, which we do not have right now. On chess.com, I cannot go play a $1 qualifier to the Columbus Open or to the LA Open or to the Orlando Open. What if there was online speed chess qualifiers around the clock for $1 entry fee or something like that um, to go to these to, – to qualify me, raise a ton of money – for the uh, for the tournament scene, yeah, that actually that's a good point. My only concern there would be would be fair play, right? I mean, poker it's a little different because you can control the mechanism, you can control the right, you control the deck. It would be far more difficult to to uh, have any real fair play issues. But how how would you manage that in in a in a scenario like this? I would say that Danny Wrench and those guys at Chess.com have already laid the ground for this. They have cash large cash tournaments, right, on a weekly basis. And they've had this for years now. And they know how to weed out the cheaters. It's it's Is this the uh, titled Tuesdays you're discussing on Right, the titled Tuesdays. Okay, gotcha. And also on, on Lee Chess, it's the same thing. They got titled or they have um you know cash tournaments all the time. Titled arena, yeah. The difference though is I believe for those tournaments they do not accept entry fees though, right? Right. Um I think it's just it's either sponsored or they have, you know, ad revenue or something like yes, that. Yes, they have the right idea. But there's we can also have uh, you know, tournament I I guess you can have free qualifiers or tournaments or there's qualifiers for cat for uh, entry fee, but I think the idea of online qualifiers to the Grand Prix tournaments is just Long, long overdue. I mean, I can't think of it really ever being tried. Yeah. Has there ever been a time, you know, when we tried this? Everybody says, well, we're afraid of cheaters. The only one that I remember, there is there is one that I remember. It was not an online one. So you're right. It has never been tried from an online uh, perspective. But I remember maybe 10 or 12 years ago, there was a U.S. championship qualifier that was not the U.S. Open. Um, it was a specific qualifier tournament. Um, yep. to qualify you into the U.S. championship. If I remember correctly, it was... Oh, it was brilliant. It wasn't just one tournament. It was the whole Grand Prix cycle. You, It was an incentive to go to Grand Prix tournaments and get points, and whoever had the most points would qualify into the uh, U.S. championship. Oh, hmm. Okay, I don't remember that. That's not... Yeah, that's not the one I was thinking of. There was a specific tournament. Um, I believe it was just called U.S. Championship Qualifier, um, and it was run oh, out yeah. of Oklahoma. If I remember I that now. Correctly, I played. I played in that. <laughs> I did too. Yeah, I thought it was a really cool idea. Um, so that's an interesting uh, concept. But yep. Um, but not online. You're right. It's never been done online in a way. You know, hey, get an entry to the Chicago Open, for example. Honestly, it had online in a very small window on ICC in the '90s or early 2000s. It was the Das Hermanus Open, and maybe there was another tournament for. Uh, 
for Iceland. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. I remember Alexander Volkevich, I think, qualified to some tournament in Iceland where he actually played Kasparov. And I think that was an online qualifier. You know, I remember the Dosermanis one. That was, like, really popular. I think a ton of people played in that. I mean, yeah. How many people played in that? Granted, they weren't paying an entry fee. But if the entry fee was a dollar... I think they would play. I think that they would play in it. Maybe even five dollars. It just depends on what you're qualifying into. Maybe the idea is you you purchase like a set amount of credits in advance, you know, and then like each sure. tournament costs like X amount of credits, you know, or something like that. Or maybe there's a relationship between the federation and one of the on, the competing online servers. Uh, that if if you want to be the guy, you're going to help us sponsor this qualification process and integrate with our tournaments. You know? <laughs> Zara Carl fixing all of the problems. Carl, uh, you know, as always, we we appreciate the feedback and, and ideas. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, those are my my big ones, though, is is merchandising and, and tying those things together, a, a more of a brand, uh, and the brand actually feeds the pro circuit. We just need to get in touch with Nike and have them make some chess gear, the Nike Air chess. Well, I think that would eventually, I think that would eventually happen with the success of the products going up. Other sponsors would say, "Hey, I want to get on that." I want to get on that uh, chess tour too, you know. <laughs> the gravy train. Let's not let's not just have the players be the sponsors of the events. I think that that's a good look. All I want is I want I want checkerboard sneakers. Okay, I want checkerboard sneakers with a Nike symbol, and maybe instead of you know like the Air Jordan thing, I want like a like a chess king flying through the air. What do you think? It could happen. It could happen. <laughs> I would totally wear those. I'm not even I'm not even joking on that. Um okay, well Carl, uh you know, there were a couple of things I wanted to ask you about um that were not chess related and uh just more because I know you. Um you do some electronic music. You you produce your own electronic music tracks. Um I remember listening to one uh a couple of years ago. Yep. What's going on there? How do you how do you t- tell me a little bit about that? Musical training. And I just loaded a room full of synthesizers and, and push buttons and, you know, tie things together. And that's, that's how I relax. <laughs> I mean, there's not much to it, really. I don't really have any uh, major ambitions. but So you add, you, here's, how, here's how we go. We, you know, maybe we can pit, for this episode, we'll pit one of my tracks <laughs> as a bumper. How about that? If you, hey, if you want to make one, I will absolutely have it as the intro or outro or wherever it makes sense. Okay. So that would be great. Oh, yeah. That would be great. And listeners, you know, actually, we'll make it the intro so listeners can hear that first and then they'll get to this point in the podcast and then then it will all fall into place why the intro is different. That sounds cool. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I don't, have, I don't have a lot to say. I'm just uh, – I've always been – I mean, I grew up in the 90s and I've always been a fan of uh, electronic music and yeah. My family – really big in music, my family. But for me, I was always the black sheep. I didn't learn how to play music properly. So I just uh, go at it randomly did i did i do i recall correctly that you made one uh where you spliced in some emory tate quotes as well uh honored the late emory tate one track with some samples of his uh yeah his grit one of his infamous monologues i guess that's the that's the one right we got to go with that track yeah that should be maybe the intro if, if you want to send it <laughs> sounds good um apart from the apart from the dance music uh you're also doing something different these days you you described yourself before we met as a treasure hunter right so what does that so carl bohr chess master uh electronic music uh technician and treasure hunter what's the treasure hunter part <clears throat> so i've been teaching chess part to survive i've been teaching chess since i was 16 and i turned 40 this year and uh 
I'm always looking for, you know, a, a new angle and a new way. And honestly, I get a little tired teaching chess to groups of 30 and 40 kids. So I, I wanted to, to move on to something else in life. And um, I started watching YouTube videos about these people making money off eBay. And I tried, it, tried my own hand at this. And it's it's fascinating, actually. It's, it's going to auctions, garage sales, uh, you name it, anywhere where you can buy something and resell it. Looking for niches in the market. And uh, it's a whole lifestyle. I mean, I have a basement full of over a thousand plus items that I've accumulated and continue to accumulate and sell from home. So it's, it's interesting. Like I think that maybe we're looking at a savaging revolution um, due to computers and the phones. Yeah. I remember when I, when I was a kid, um, we, I, I collected uh, sports cards, you know, basketball cards and baseball cards and that sort of memorabilia. And, um, the internet and eBay and Amazon actually just completely destroyed the the sports card collecting market, you know, because there was an influx of, of you could find whatever you wanted and you could find it quickly. Um, so the rare cards and the harder to find ones to complete the set basically just tanked in value. Um, so what, what things have you found in your scavenging Trevor hunt, try the treasure hunting, et cetera, um, wow, I had a hard time with those words. That the reverse is true. Maybe the internet has increased their value or enhanced their value. What are your What are your gold mines? I guess. Well, I had an epiphany from this. Is that basically one of my mottos in life now? Is that everything has value? Okay. And it's true. You know, you can always find someone that's interested in this one thing. So some hmm. of my more interesting sales so far was um, I I got a a hundred year old wooden box. I think it's called, they call it a pioneer box. It's just a handmade little wooden box. And it had these three drawers on it. And, uh, I tried to open the bottom drawer, but I couldn't get it open. It was stuck and I didn't want to break the box. It was very old. So I, I just threw it on eBay for like 30 bucks and I sold it. A few weeks later, I got a angry message from the buyer that they managed to get the bottom, uh, compartment open and inside, they found a wasp's nest. A bunch <laughs> of, of course, a bunch of bugs. In there. Yeah. Now these bugs were, were dead, mind you. But this buyer was not happy, and he I promptly returned his uh, refunded his money, and he sent the box back. So I did some research, and I found out there's a niche for people who buy hornets' nests. <laughs> and I was able to, to put it back on eBay for about three hundred dollars, and successfully sold it. Wow. And uh, <laughs> that's probably my one wow. of my my favorite stories is that everything has value and you just never know until you look. I would never have thought, you know, I mean, you always hear, uh, you see these news articles of, of strange things that sell on eBay. Right. But a, a wasp's nest, I mean, what is the utility? Maybe it's just a collector's item or, or what? Yeah. Sometimes it seems like the weirder it is, the better, you know? Yeah. The weirder it is, the better people go through phases in their life where suddenly they become a collector of weird stuff, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was my uh, wasp net collecting phase back in uh, <laughs> 2018. Um, so y you also mentioned that you felt some of your lessons or knowledge or, or chess skills, you know, things that you had learned um, throughout, you know, 30 plus years of chess somehow translated or you, you tapped into that for some of your scavenging prowess. I, I would say so for sure. Just, you know, in chess, uh, if you take it seriously, you find yourself sitting in front of a computer doing research a lot. 
And that's true with buying and selling and studying markets. So, uh, you know, I think I have a personality where I'm okay with, with obsessing and finding those little nooks and cran- crannies of, of practice and theory on things. Um, and I'm, I'm a complete novice at, at buying and selling, honestly. But I, I can say that, you know, in, a, in, the, in the space of one year, it's gone from a hobby to an income. So um, hmm. maybe there is something to the chess player brain and uh, buying and selling. Hmm. At profit. That's fascinating. You know, I um, I used to love you know like when I was uh, when I was a kid. You know, you like walk walk up the street and check out the garage sale and see what you can find, right? Yeah. Um. So is there like a little thrill when you come across something you know, um, maybe that you know is going to be more valuable than than you found it for? Oh man, it's it's the same rush as a uh, smothered checkmate. <laughs> no. Yeah. Which which is more satisfying? Like a really great. Um, garage sale estate sale find or let's say i'm gonna go i'm gonna go all the way here let's say like a classical tournament victory against a gm which is more satisfying okay so i'm gonna set this up this i went right to the top i didn't i'll I'll say it this way i've never wept tears of joy from a sale from a buy and a sell i've never (laughs) been driven to the point of ecstasy in chess i can i can say many times I've, i've been pushed came to that point where this is just like the best feeling you can ever have. Right. With that said though, nowadays, I mean, I'm not actively playing a lot of tournaments. I get a bigger rush out of, uh, you know, bought the buying and selling game, but interesting. Certainly as far as all time highs go no, Do, the, it doesn't the come close. Chess, yeah. It doesn't come close. Hmm. You still have, you still have it. You still have it in you, Carl. It's in your blood. Yeah. I mean, I should go play Kings Island this weekend. It's just that there's, there's probably five or six grandmasters. I think there's five prizes with the hotel, the gas, the food, and everything. I really need to win first prize clear to justify it. Right. And that's a tough. That's a tough one. I have to probably beat three grandmasters or two at least to do that. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready to go do that. There's an under twenty three hundred prize, but I'm not under twenty three hundred. Yeah. So there's just not enough. The uh, struggle. The struggle, man. Squeeze in the. Not enough lemon in the juice, not enough lemon in the squeeze. How's that go? Squeeze in the juice, juice and squeeze. Something like that. Is that an Ohio, that must be an Ohio thing because I have not heard that one. I don't know. Maybe. Well, Carl, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, I appreciate you coming on. Um, you know, this this season of the Underground, um, uh, I, I titled Americana because I, I wanted to really get the flavor right of the American chess player. And... In a lot of ways, I, I, I do believe, uh, and you can take this as a compliment or however you'd like, but I, I believe you embody that, um, uh, you know, and, and so I think you are a great guest. I take that as a compliment. Uh, that, that's how it's meant. Um, so uh, I, I think you were a fantastic guest to have on, and I, I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me. Hey, thank you, Pete. Uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon, and I will uh, look forward to uh, receiving that Emory tape track. Absolutely. Take care, Carl. Talk to you soon. Tactical struggle. Thank you for listening to the Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday, and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. Until next time, signing off, Pete Karyanis. <laughs>